Welcome to another NDS Safer and Stronger podcast. This podcast is offered in two parts and focuses on answering key questions disability workers have been asking us regarding how they can maximise infection prevention and control in COVID risk and COVID positive environments. They are seeking to reduce the risk of taking any infection home to their families while supporting people with disabilities in the safest manner possible. My name is Heather McMinn, and I will be sharing this podcast with Bruce Greaves, CEO of the Health Education Collaborative. While Bruce and I are based in Victoria and will share insights from the Victorian experience of COVID, the concerns raised in this podcast can apply to disability workers across any part of Australia. The requirements we identify throughout always need to be checked against listeners' own state or Territory Department of Health websites, as infection prevention control guidance may change in relation to local COVID environments. Bruce has been working with the Victorian Government and our Safer and Stronger team, supporting frontline workers with training and input arising from his experience and knowledge in infection prevention and control during this COVID pandemic. Welcome, Bruce. Before we launch into the questions, can you please give our listeners some insight into your background that informs your expert input? Thanks, Heather. Uh, My background is I'm an emergency nurse and managed an emergency department in Melbourne for some 14 years prior to um, developing a organisation in education and training for health workers uh, and health professionals. At the start of the pandemic, I was contracted by the Department of Health to provide um, expertise in PPE and COVID awareness training to a very broad range of um, practitioners uh, throughout Melbourne and regional areas. That include National Disability Service, Maternal and Child Health, um, the ADF that uh, came to Melbourne. I probably trained the majority of those people, some 1,800 ADF personnel overall. And have since moved into developing um, online programs to assist these various groups uh, with their COVID awareness and IPC needs. Thank you, Bruce. What have you noticed about the COVID pandemic in the last two years? I think the big thing I've noticed is the virus is evolving and we seem to be chasing our tails to keep on top of it. What we need to establish is a strong infection prevention and control foundation for work practice when caring for anyone who may have a disability or chronic disease or condition. These foundation IPC practices should be part of yearly professional development so everyone is ready to respond to whatever challenge comes next. We all need to be prepared for changes in COVID and new variants as and if they appear but also prepared to respond and manage other infectious diseases such as influenza and gastroenteritis. It's better to be preventative than have people become ill or infect other people in their household. Our social and working environment has changed and this needs to become part of our day-to-day practice. We know that many workers are supporting people who are COVID positive and they worry about taking the virus home to their families. 
Some request accommodation outside of their normal residence while they're doing this. However, we know that this is not always possible. Can you suggest other steps that these workers could implement to try and minimise the risk of taking any infection home? It's a really good point, and a lot of people are quite concerned about doing this and going to work, especially with uh, in a possible COVID-positive environment. But I want people to think of it this way. Have you been into a supermarket or shopping centre lately? The answer is probably yes. The chances are you are in close contact with a COVID-positive person, which is real and high. So do you accommodate yourself outside your normal residence because of that risk of going into a supermarket? The answer is probably not. So in some respects, you can be safer attending a client or person that is positive as you're much more cautious when entering. And by taking all the recommended precautions using correct PPE, hand hygiene and ventilation, etc., you would technically be safer than going into a supermarket. Some ways to improve your general work IPC safety are have work clothes or a uniform, two sets that are easy to wash and dry, so using clothes as a base PPE. Scrubs are great and used by many acute workers. I use these all the time, but they may not be appropriate for all your settings. Polycotton pants and polo tops are good, easy to wash each day and they tend to dry quickly, so they're very usable and user-friendly. Go directly home, change as soon as you get home, close straight into the wash, shower if you've been engaged in close contact or personal contact with a, a COVID-positive person, and wash your clothes immediately. And you should always wipe down your car on, on arrival at home or after a visit, just using some uh, detergent disinfectant wipes and that'll ensure the, the car is as clean as, as well and your family will be safe getting into that car if it's a common use car. That's a great suggestion about having a uniform even if it's not sort of a, a recognised uniform for your particular organisation. With the personal clothing, can you actually wash that with other household garments and also do you need to have any special soaps or sanitizers? or specific temperatures to wash these clothes? Yeah, really good question. Uh, I think if you were in a high-risk environment, it would be just appear to be safer and, and nicer to wash that uniform separately. Um, but if not, and it's general day use and, and it's not a definite positive, I think it can go in the wash with other clothing. But in theory, it should go into uh, a hot wash. So it should be about 60 degrees or above is the recommendation. Soap and water is very, very effective in destroying the virus as the virus has a fatty outer layer and the soap emulsifies or breaks down the fat. So soap's the real hero, okay? But it doesn't need to be a special soap. Your normal routine detergent uh, is fine. Hand sanitizers or rubs are really, really important in this battle as well and they work similar to soap by breaking down the outer fatty layer um, causing the virus to become inactive. But the key here is it takes 20 seconds before the alcohol in the hand rub uh, destroys the outer layer of that virus, making it inactive. But also remember that it doesn't always wash it. It's not washing it off your hands. It's just um, inactivating the virus. Hand sanitizers are a must in this, this battle. Uh, and as an ongoing thing, but 
as I mentioned, the sanitizers deactivate the virus or the microbes on your hand, but they don't actually wash it off. So as soon as you ha have access to running water and soap, then you should use soap and water. And again, a minimum of 20 seconds. In fact, the soap and water hand wash should take uh, up to 45 seconds overall. And that's the safest we can be. I also understand that any hand sanitizers should have sort of a 70%, roughly 70% alcohol content. But the higher you go, the quicker it dries. So having 100% alcohol is actually not necessarily going to be beneficial. That's absolutely correct, because uh, if it contains too much alcohol, it dries out too quickly. And we know that it takes a minimum of 20 seconds for the alcohol, which is the active part of the, the sanitizer, to uh, destroy that outer layer of the virus. So um, somewhere between 60 and 80 percent is good. We aim for 70. Um, and that's that's where we should be should be aiming at is to get that 70 percent alcohol base. Um, and the carrying agent in the sanitizer, it should, with the appropriate amount on your hand, amount on your hands, should last that twenty seconds plus. But always, always, uh, just one more thing: just always follow the guidelines for hand washing. And we know there's lots of good posters available through state and territory and federal government um, Department of Health websites that show exactly how to wash your hands or World Health Organisation also has great posters. We have a lot of disability workers that offer in-home support and aren't actually going to a specific work site, but rather an individual person's residence. How can they transport their PPE, given they're supposed to put it on and take it off um, at the work setting? Yeah, another really good question and, and one that comes up often. I think the best way and the way that the Department of Health uh, IPCAR team manage their PPE going to many outbreaks is they have two plastic tubs in the boot of the car. One tub will contain all of your clean PPE, your hand sanitizers, um, et cetera, uh, for use for donning. And the other tub contains several plastic bags for disposal. So when you return to the car and you've, you doff, you can actually put all of your um, dirty PPE into the biohazard bag if you have it or two normal garbage bags if you don't, um, and that can be held at the cart and kept in that tub. So two tubs separating each is the best way and always ensure that you take enough PPE for your application for the day. If you've got two visits to do, always take three sets of PPE just in case one set of PPE is faulty and it does happen. So. Yeah. I also understand that um, in some areas it's appropriate if you don't have access to a clinical waste um, bin that you can actually put your PPE as long as it's um, double bagged into your general waste um, bin or household waste. Uh, I do want to make the note that with any of the advice given in this podcast, we always recommend that workers do check their own state and territory um, guidelines through the Department of Health, and that includes any waste management. But is that correct that, you know, it can be double bagged provided that's acceptable within your state or territory? 
Absolutely can be, yes. I wouldn't be putting biohazard bags in the general waste because that might create some alarm for the uh, council workers collecting it. So double bagged in normal standard garbage bags, just make sure they're nice and strong and popped into your normal general waste. But again, always check with your local council. And some local councils do offer a service where they will collect biohazardous waste. So that's another thing that you can check with some councils. Uh, in providing that um, that service, but always check with your state and territory waste management regulations and the Department of Health. And we do know that if you're an organisation that is generating a lot of waste PPE, it is recommended that you explore with your council and Department of Health whether you need to have an arrangement with a clinical waste um, provider who can come and collect and provide you with the appropriate waste bins uh, because, you know, it's when we're talking about putting it double bagged and in general waste, we're really looking at small amounts in those cases. Bruce, I'd like to move on to the mask um, discussion with PPE. There are lots of different masks. Um, we know that workers are often recommended to wear surgical masks at some st um, in some settings, and then they're asked to wear what's called a P2N95 mask. Uh, could you please just identify what the difference is between a surgical mask and a P2N95 mask and then follow on um, a little bit more around how you know that these masks are fitting properly if you're required to wear a P2 or N95 mask. Well, thanks, Heather, because this is one of my favourite subjects, masks, um, as I've been doing a lot of it lately. Um, I think in the last few months I've fit tested probably around a about a thousand people I think I'm coming up to um, yeah masks are a really really big subject and uh, there's a lot of confusion over masks and just wearing a N95 and you're okay well it's actually not the case we need to define a few things first of all surgical masks are there to prevent the wearer from spreading droplets they're essentially there to protect other people not the individual themselves they were actually invented to protect the patient during surgery from the surgeon breathing microbes into the open wound during an operation. So the, But they do offer the wearer some small protection. And, and if we put a figure on it, I would say maybe 20% protection for the wearer and 80% protection for others. The P2 and N95 masks protect both the wearer and others. And we need to define the difference between the two of these masks and what it means. So P2 is the European standard for respiratory protection for that level of mask. And they're protecting us at 94% particulate infiltration rate. N95 is the American NOSH standard for respiratory protection, of which we follow as well. And they protect us at, obviously, 95% filtration rate. Just as a, a little thing, the N stands for non-oil resistance. So if you are working in a petrochemical industry, those masks should not be worn to protect them. Just to clarify, the P2 and the N95 thing only refers to the filtration level of the mask. It does not refer to whether the mask actually fits your face and seals properly to protect you properly. So that's really, really important to understand that. And it's very important to use a TGA-approved mask, which meets the European or US standards for respiratory protection. The KN95 mask, which is often seen around, is a Chinese self-approved mask and is not recognised 
any, at, in any country outside of China. Uh, they're readily available and sold everywhere, uh, but they're not TGA approved for use in Australia. I'm not saying that they're a bad mask or they shouldn't be used. I think they can be used similarly to a normal surgical mask, yes. So the gold standard for these masks is whether it fits properly. And what we're talking about here is a fitted N95P2 respirator mask. And that's really, really important. So fit testing is the gold standard. Fit testing ensures that a particular mask fits and seals and protects the wearer to the highest standard. Um, this requires a trained tester and using a quantity fit test machine and that will identify the most appropriate mask for that person's face, including facial shape and whether any leaks develop during the test. Because during the test, we put you through a series of movements and that will show whether that mask moves on your face while you're talking, moving, bending, etc., and allowing any leaks in. And just, just for a little bit more, and I could talk on this all day, uh, if there is a leak, Air is not silly. Air will always go to the point of least resistance, which means a majority of the air you're breathing in, instead of going through the filtration part of the mask, will go in through the leak. Kind of works like a vacuum cleaner bag in a way. So it's really, really important um, to have that mask fitted properly. And um, facial shapes change over time. And as we age uh, or if we lose weight or gain weight, so this is really important um, and it's also a regulation that fit testing should be carried out every year because of that fact. So if our facial shape changes or we put on weight or lose weight, um, that mask that we were fitted for may not be fitting us safely. Uh, so each year we should be retested for those masks to make sure they're fitted properly. There is one thing we can do, however, and that is we can do a fit check. So once that mask has been fitted and we know that mask is appropriate for your facial shape and protects you to the highest standard, uh, doing a fit check by doing what we call the suck-in blow-out method, which is where you place your hands around the edge of the mask and then you suck in and blow out. And if you can feel any air leaking from around the outside, then you need to readjust that mask, make it a bit tighter, press it in around the nose a bit more. Um, and that should... Uh, give you the highest level of safety putting that mask on each day. And that, that little check should be done every time you put the mask on. So based on what you're saying, Bruce, if you um, have, don't have access to the fit testing, you know, the proper gold standard fit testing, then you need to be checking either with your by yourself, that, that sucking in and breathing out and feeling if you've got any air coming out, that kind of thing, that test um, when you go and put your P2 or N95 mask on or have a colleague look at how it fits on your face and work with you to check that uh, because we do know that not every provider and not every worker will have access to that proper gold standard fit testing, um, even though we can really advocate for that as a, as a the best option possible, um, that the reality is for a lot of people that isn't going to be the case. So we really do need those tips and tricks around how you check the mask that you've got is fitting on your face. And if it's not fitting properly, to be aware that there are different versions of P2 N95 masks that will be uh, a, 
slightly different shape for your face. Is is that a correct analysis of what you've just been um, advising? Yeah, absolutely it is. So um, there are a lot of places where they people haven't had the gold standard fit testing performed. So doing, doing that fit check uh, is one way. I used to use another method uh, in my emergency department where we would t- tear a tiny piece of facial tissue and hold it up around the edge of the mask and do the suck-in blowout. And if that bit of facial tissue moved, you knew that there was a little tiny leak there. It's not perfect, but it was just another method of um, checking the mask. But, yes, the, the checking is really important. Having a colleague look to make sure that the the um, straps are in the right place, that there's no big obvious gaps um, is, is a really important factor. At the end of this podcast, we will add a link to a website that includes um, the option to look at a a fit check uh, video that NDS has created with Bruce to assist uh, any workers who are using the P2N95 masks to understand how to fit them uh, on their face correctly. There are obviously different brands of P2 and N95 um, approved masks uh, that people can actually source that might fit their face better than others. Are there any that you have come across that fit really well through your fit testing or uh, on the flip side, don't seem to fit properly uh, in your fit testing um, processes? Yeah, look, a really, really good question because there are quite a few masks on the market and some masks do fit better than others. Uh, We find that there's a couple of masks which fit more people easily than other masks. But again, it's about seeing that person's facial shape and um, uh, picking the right mask for their face. Just because someone likes wearing a mask, we get a lot of people come to testing and go, I don't like wearing that one. I I like this one. It's the one I like to wear. Uh, And they're quite surprised when we test them to find out that it actually fails the test hugely. Um, And they're they're quite surprised there. and, And the others actually fit their face really well. Without giving brands, yes, there are certain types of masks which will will fit faces better. Certainly what we call the flat fold masks, which you'll see in the video um, that I do on masks, they're usually quite good and we can actually fit those to the majority of faces. I'm also aware that if you've got facial hair, uh, that this can be a problem. Do you have any tips and tricks for people who've got um, a beard or a moustache in terms of uh, wearing a P2 on N95 mask? Well, probably the big tip would be to shave it off, but we know that a lot of people aren't going to do that, uh, and some for religious um, reasons as well and some that they've just had their beard all their life and there's no way they're going to shave that off and and totally respect that. Um, A neatly trimmed beard is often safer and better than a big bushy beard. Big bushy beard, it's almost impossible. Uh, It's surprising how much leakage does happen with a beard uh, that you get um, particles moving through. Uh, So keeping it trimmed as neat as possible and as short as possible Uh, is the best way to go. And then finding the most appropriate mask that will cover the majority of the face and the facial hair is is the only thing you can do. But we can never be 100%. I think in the last month of fitting people, probably about 300 people that I fitted in the last month, we've had several that have had beards and two actually fitted for one particular mask. 
overall that had nice trimmed beards and we could fit them appropriately. It's great for people to know that there are options out there and particularly for the workers who might be listening to this podcast today who are in the states and territories where there's not been a lot of COVID infection and, you know, we really, um, you know, are, are very pleased for you that that hasn't happened, workers out there, um, that you haven't had to experience what some of us have gone through in Victoria and New South Wales and to lesser degrees in, in Queensland and South Australia. Um, but we do recognise that, unfortunately, COVID is likely to be around at some stage and we do want um, to support all workers across all states, whether you've had a little bit of experience or not much at all or a lot of experience, to be wearing your PPE correctly. Can I... Um, I'll just like to say one more thing about masks, Heather, and something that's a little bit forgotten uh, with a lot of people that do fit testing with masks and, and we actually instruct all of the people we fit test on skin care as well and that's really really important if you're going to be wearing these masks you know for the majority of the day when you're dealing with clients uh, and people you're supporting um, it can take a toll on your face um, lots of people with sore noses and um, skin problems due to the masks so good washing of the face with soap and water, drying, and then an appropriate moisturiser to the skin at the end of the day is, is really important. And at the start of the day, applying that moisturiser, just keeping the skin in good shape. The other problem that happens with, especially with a couple of these brands of masks, is that people's noses become quite red and sore because you need to actually mould in around the nose really well and it needs to fit really tightly. And that's, we've seen many people with sores on their nose and we're talking open sores so protecting that area is really important and if that happens to anyone they should seek um, advice from a, a nurse or a wound care consultant um, but I advocate the use of silicon dressings so silicon dressings are used to um, help with scar reduction uh, post-surgery uh, for cosmetic surgery and things like that. But you can buy silicon dressings in small thin strips. You can apply that over the bridge of the nose and then pop the mask on. That'll protect the skin. It will help heal a wound if there is a wound. Uh, but more importantly, it will help protect um, that area as well. Thank you, Bruce. That is really important. This brings us to the end of part one of our podcast, focusing on how disability workers can reduce the risks of transmitting COVID infection from a workplace setting to their home environment. Please join Bruce and I for part two that picks up on further PPE, including donning and doffing gowns, face shields, reusable PPE, airflow, and the role of vaccinations. Don't forget to check our links on the podcast description to a range of resources that will support you in your infection prevention and control. For more information, go to the NDS website at nds.org.au, where you will find the NDS IPC toolkit and short videos on how to use face masks.